Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Farid Audi. And we promised our listeners some spooky kind of Halloweenish episodes in October. And it just so happens that I've got magic on the brain recently because I was visiting with my 10-year-old niece and she is finally requiring me to do something that many people have done, which is read Harry Potter. Oh, finally. I know. I know you've been wanting that for a long time. That's great news. <laughs> yes, I know. It's been my long-cherished hope. She lies in bed at night. Read Harry hoping Potter. Hoping that I'll read it. She's wearing a wizard outfit right now, actually. <laughs> so we wanted to look into some real-life examples of people who are said to have been involved with magic and the occult. And John Dee, who was a mathematician and astronomer from the 16th century, really piqued our interest, not least of all because there's a new opera about him. So this opera, which is called Dr. D, premiered at the Manchester International Festival in July. And it came about when festival organizers approached the graphic novelist Alan Moore, who is the creator of V for Vendetta and From Hell, approached him to work on a new project about the, quote, life of an obscure but important figure from English history. So Moore, pondering on this, decided to focus on John D, of course. Moore didn't finish the project. He left before it was completed. But Damon Albarn, singer and songwriter of the band Blur and also Gorillaz, he did finish it along with director Rufus Norris. And we haven't heard or seen it ourselves, but we've, we did get kind of stuck on that phrase, obscure but important figure from English history. I mean, that's exactly the type of person AKA we love to research. Stuff you missed in history class. Exactly. So there's no denying that D was important. In addition to being an accomplished mathematician, astronomer, geographer, and navigator, and also book collector, he was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I and probably a spy for her in some capacity, and also an early proponent of expanding Britain into an empire. So why is this guy with some legitimate resume entries sometimes dismissed as the Queen's astrologer, a necromancer, and a sorcerer? Well, we're going to take a look at that. But first, we need to find out how he got to work for the Queen in the first place. So it started with schooling. And he was born, John Dee was born July 13th, 1527 in London. His father, Roland Dee, was of Welsh descent and was probably some kind of merchant. So John Dee started his studies at a school in Chelmsford in Essex in 1535 and then went on to St. John's College in Cambridge in 1542, where he studied a pretty impressive lineup of Greek, Latin, philosophy, geometry, arithmetic, and astronomy. And from the beginning, he was really dedicated to his studies, especially when you consider how young he was at the time. He really seemed to love to learn, especially when it came to studying mathematics. And just to give you an example of young John Dee's typical day, according to his biographer, Benjamin Woolley, Dee would work at his studies about 18 hours hours a day, leaving just four hours for sleep and two hours for meals. So a busy child. 
And by all accounts, he was an extremely talented scholar. Some even call him a genius. So I guess all that hard work of his really paid off. He got both his bachelor's and master's degrees from St. John's in 1545 and 1548, respectively. In 1546, he was made one of the founding fellows of Trinity College in Cambridge. But then he switched stuff up a little bit. He left England. From 1548 to 1551, he continued his scientific education on the continent. And he studied with a variety of top experts in a number of different fields, including cartography and mathematics. He published astronomy texts and lectured on Euclid's elements. Euclid, of course, was a Greek mathematician and sometimes called the father of geometry. And Dee is sometimes credited with popularizing Euclidean geometry in academic circles. He was also said to be an early supporter of Copernicus's heliocentric model of the universe. So, so he was out promoting sort of revolutionary math. He was out learning and kind of, yeah, thinking about and talking about cutting-edge ideas. It was interesting, though. He turned down two mathematical professorships, one at the University of Paris in 1551 and another one that was offered to him at the University of Oxford in 1554. It's unclear exactly why he did this. He seems to have had designs on landing a position with the English crown, though, as we'll see later. Probably hoped that that setup would result in financial support or patronage that would allow him to pursue his own research. So that seemed to work at first. He was aiming higher. Yeah, it did seem to work at first. And when Dee returned to England in 1551, he was able to associate himself with the royal court. And he offered his math instruction to courtiers and to navigators. And that same year, he was presented to King Edward VI, who granted him a pension of 100 crowns, which uh, Dee later exchanged for a rectorship, which had a nice, comfortable living associated with it. Uh, so, yeah. It seems like he was doing well for himself. He made friends at court. He received the patronage of a couple of them, including the Duchess of Northumberland. And soon he started to get caught up in things, though. The intrigue that was going on at the time regarding Queen Mary's ascension to the throne and the tensions going on in England between the Catholics and the Protestants. But Dee played his cards right. And at least at first, he didn't appear to take sides, which obviously during this time could mean a swift execution. Yeah, so when Queen Mary I, who was Catholic, took the throne, Dee served as a consultant and astrologer to her. So we should stop here, though, and talk about it a little bit, because you're probably thinking, whoa, wait a second, astrology? I thought you said Dee was into astronomy. I have a whole different opinion of him now. But before you go judging him, we have to give you a little background by way of explanation. Around this time, there wasn't such a distinct line between astronomy and astrology. Many people like Dee put stock in both. In fact, even though people were coming out of the Dark Ages in the 16th century, reason and science still existed right alongside superstition and magic. So he wasn't the only one to feel this way or to have these beliefs. And don't get too upset about Dark Ages people. I know everyone sometimes gets riled up with that, but I think it's a good illustrative term for discussing coming out of this real superstitious, magical time. Yeah, it's illustrative. So just to give you an example of what Dee's beliefs were like, he believed that the positions of the planets at the moment of a person's birth would affect their future. So like astrology. But he was driven to find a scientific explanation for this. And it was this need to understand it all that really shaped his whole career. So we're going to see that throughout. To reconcile the two, essentially. 
And so he was asked to use these astrology skills for Queen Mary. He was asked to cast horoscopes for her and for her husband, Philip II of Spain. Around that time, though, Dee also started a correspondence with the Protestant princess Elizabeth, Mary's half-sister, and he did an astrological chart for her, too. Soon after this, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, in May of 1555, Dee was arrested and imprisoned at Hampton Court, a week or so before Elizabeth faced a simil- similar situation. And the charge against him may be different depending on what source you look at. I've seen it as conjuring, and then I've seen it in other places as simply calculating. Um, just to explain that, mathematics was kind of considered a form of black magic by some at that time. So that's why calculating would have been a criminal charge. He was acquitted after this and released soon after, though. And he went back to work for Mary, which kind of amazes me. Yeah, he kept on working for Mary, and he was loyal to her until she died in 1558. And then when Elizabeth I became queen after that, Dee immediately shifted his allegiance to her. It's likely most people think that he may have supported her all along. But regardless, it's interesting to see that he showed loyalty to kind of whoever was in power because it was best for him. Especially if since it seems like it would be difficult for an astrologer to show loyalty to two people. What are you going to tell somebody that their their cards don't look so great or their stars aren't aligned um, correctly? Maybe just rather? avoid the conversation. I know, it would be a it'd be a tricky conversation to have. So with Elizabeth, he became kind of a scientific and medical advisor to her, known officially as the Queen's Intelligencer or the Royal Astrologer. And she asked him to use his astrological skills to pick the date of her coronation. And obviously it worked out. So she was happy with the result and she promised him security, but always kind of kept him at arm's length. Like she didn't want to be too closely associated with his involvement in the occult. But Dee still had that dream of royal patronage and especially a dream of creating this huge royal library that would be available to everyone with the goal of advancing learning. But he couldn't get official support for that. So finally, he just decided to build his own private library and spent several years abroad collecting books for it. By the mid-1560s, he had set up a laboratory and a library near London, and the library had more than 4,000 books in it and was the largest private library in England at the time. But Dee kept to his original intention. He was really generous with it. He made it accessible to scholars. He had a pretty significant collection of astronomical instruments, a collection of globes. So this was all suddenly um, at the fingertips of England scholars, which was a great boon for them. And for him, too, during the next 20 years or so, Dee was involved in a number of, let's say, practical or more scientific Compared to pursuits. what we'll discuss later. Yes. He edited, for example, the first English translation of Euclid's Elements in 1570. He also observed Tycho Brahe's Supernova of 1572. And if you would like to know a little bit more about that, you can reference our Tycho Brahe podcast from last December. So he observed this as well, and he offered some trigonometric methods for finding its distance from Earth. So he kind of helped out in that respect. Adding a little to the discussion. Absolutely. And he recommended that England adopt the Gregorian calendar in 1582, although no one really listened to him at the time. And during this entire period, he was also helping lay the groundwork for English exploration by preparing just all sorts of nautical information, including maps and charts for navigation in the polar regions, as well as teaching ship captains and crews about the principles of 
navigation and giving them navigational instruments. So this allowed them to venture out on routes that were away from the coast and really encourage exploration. I kind of see him as a coach almost to all of these advisors, you know, somebody who's got the brains and knows all of the specifics for all of these diverse sciences and can help the, the people actually making the decisions make the correct decisions. And just a little side note, if you're interested in such things, uh, Dee was probably an advisor on Sir Francis Drake's voyages as well. So that's an, another impressive entry for his resume. But along those same lines, Dee was a really big advocate of building a British empire. And that sort of makes sense if you consider his involvement in all the navigation stuff. He expressed those views, those views for an empire, in a work called Perfect Art of Navigation, but just because he was working on navigation and empire building didn't mean that he had left math and physics and astrology and magic uh, to just linger there and not be worked on. He published something called the Propadumata Aphrastica in 1558, which contained his views on those subjects, math and physics and magic and things like that. And that's not all he had going on. Many sources also suggest that throughout this period, Dee was working with none other than Sir Francis Walsingham as a spy for the English crown. And uh, that's kind of kind of a surprise, isn't it? It is. It just takes the story in a completely different direction. An article in Military History by Adam Mandelbaum, for example, suggests that it was Dee, along with Walsingham, who founded the British Secret Intelligence Service. I mean, talk about having an entry on your resume. That's something that you wouldn't expect for someone who's labeled a sorcerer and a conjurer. Not at all, but he was probably able to use both his scientific and his more supernatural skills to act as a spy and, and to work in this capacity. Because for the more scientific part of things, Mandelbaum suggests that D was kind of like a 16th century version of James Bond gadget master Q. He would create all kinds of cool devices, including this mechanical flying bird, which might not have been used for spying, but it still sounds pretty neat. Um, so, you know, th- that very practical side of him had an outlet in this. Speaking of James Bond, there is another James Bond connection here that's kind of interesting, and I couldn't really find it in any great academic sources or anything. So I thought I'd just put it out there that if you happen to look up D and 007 on the Internet, you might find some interesting stuff there. Some say that he actually used that 007 sign in his secret correspondence to the Queen. The two O's would symbolize his eyes and the seven was just a sacred or lucky number to him. I like that. Maybe some tutor experts can let us know if there's any truth behind that. Here's what we do know, though. Dee also discovered this work while he was searching for books abroad, and it was the Steganographia of Johannes Trithemius, a German abbot and magician of the late 15th century. It was divided into three books, all of which were apparently concerned with the evocation of angels. And this was a topic that Dee was very interested in, and we'll tell you more about that later. But the first two parts actually turned out to be hoaxes. They were really, the subject of them was really secret codes. And only the third part was actually about contacting spirits. 
So according to Mandelbaum's article, Dee used this code to communicate with Walsingham and disguise the intelligence he'd gathered, throwing some symbols associated with alchemy in there, too. That was in the mix so that people would think that they were magical writings. It's why some people think of him more as a master spy than necessarily a magician. And I really love this detail. I mean, I imagine somebody intercepting a letter and it looks like it's all about magic. And to add to that, you know, there are these weird symbols thrown in and it's from old John Dee. Mm-hmm. Really, there's uh, important communications contained. I think that's such a interesting tactic for a spy to take. I know we when we talked about Civil War spies, we talked about one who um, would visit the hospitals and feign being crazy. And mm-hmm. this is this reminded me of that almost just a, a personality disguise almost. Yeah, something that has the ability to tarnish your reputation, uh, but is furthering your cause at the same time. Dismiss what you're what you're working on. So Dee did also employ his psychic abilities and occult knowledge in this. Walsingham, for example, asked him to cast horoscopes to evaluate the queen's marriage options. And he used this to determine that neither the Duke Jianzhu or his brother were suitable marriage partners for the queen. So what other intelligence did Dee obtain? Well, for one thing, he gathered a lot of information about Spain, which was England's big expansionist rival. He found out about the Armada, the Spanish fleet that was designed to overthrow Elizabeth long before it was launched. And in fact, it's said that Dee predicted violent storms in 1588. He used his math and astronomy knowledge to predict the weather, I guess, and spread that around. And Spain had some trouble because of that, because of those rumors. They had trouble drumming up volunteers for this venture. And then, of course, the predictions proved to be true. Storms did destroy many of the Armada ships. And some have wondered if that prediction that he made was actually just psychological warfare by the English or if it was actually just that he knew what he was doing. It was really psychic. Yep. But between the scientific pursuits and the spying, you'd think that Dee would really have his work cut out for him. But he also had some side jobs going on. He told fortunes for money. He practiced necromancy with real corpses, basically attempting to communicate with the dead or even raise the dead. And on top of that, he would also teach the occult arts and alchemy to students for a fee, basically as a magician for hire. But one other thing that was a real passion of Dee's was his efforts to communicate with angels. I mean, this guy has so much going on, but that was a really strong interest of his. He's said to have conducted occult experiments with crystal gazing that he called scrying the ether and began conversing with angelic intelligences this way. And Dee got more and more involved in this. So while some of these pursuits seem pretty well balanced, for most of his life, this started to take over the other ones from the 1580s onward until it really began to dominate his life almost entirely. And a lot of people think that he changed his focus because he was just so frustrated that he couldn't gain a comprehensive understanding of the universe up until that point. That was what he was striving for all along, as we mentioned earlier, to try to reconcile the magical aspects of life with the practical aspects. And Yeah, the secrets of the universe, yeah, the to, secrets of the world. make it all make sense. And he was frustrated he couldn't do this despite his long hours, despite his intelligence, and thought that maybe the angels could explain it all. They could help him out. 
Another major influence that played a part in this, though, was a man named Edward Kelly, not to be confused with Ned Kelly, this who we mentioned. Another not Ned. It's I'm not sorry. another Australian <laughs> podcast. But Edward Kelly came into Dee's life in 1582, and he's often referred to as Dee's medium. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, Kelly was a convicted counterfeiter, and he claimed that he could contact angels and spirits by gazing into a crystal ball. He and Dee held seances together, and Dee became pretty convinced that Kelly's abilities were actually real. The two traveled on the continent together for several years in the 1580s, doing displays of magic at various courts, and they recorded a language for communicating with angels, which is now referred to as Enochian, and he basically claimed that the angels had revealed this language to them. Many historians suggest that Kelly was pretty much a con artist, doing this for fame and for wealth. According to Dee biographer Wooley, he eventually made a play for Dee's wife, and that's what sort of broke them apart. But Dee seems to have really been sincere in his belief of this stuff, and that didn't help him win any friends. And by the time he returned to England in 1589, his reputation had been very much tarnished by his involvement in the occult. And he found that his library had been ransacked and his books and scientific instruments had been stolen. And that that great reputation as a practical mind, as somebody who was intelligent and and capable of performing all these sciences was really gone. And ultimately, the financial support that Dee had longed for from Queen Elizabeth I and that she had sort of promised him too, never really materialized. She, she did give him a job. She appointed him warden of Manchester College in 1596, but that didn't pay enough to support Dee and support his family and was honestly probably just a way to get him out of London, um, away from, from giving her a bad rap by association. So his friends managed to raise some money for him, but still his final years were pretty much spent in poverty. He was miserable in Manchester, and in 1605, to add insult to injury, the area was hit by plague, killing his wife and several of his children, too. He eventually returned to London and died there in December 1608. He basically spent the end of his life trying to fight off the reputation of being a conjurer. And that's what many remember him as, even though he did so many other things. They're kind of faded into the background now. The British Museum, though, has some artifacts associated with him that you can check out, including a mirror that he probably used in his occult research. And for all of the literary-minded people out there, Dee is also thought to be, some people actually say he's almost certainly the inspiration for a very famous literary conjurer, Prospero, in Shakespeare's The Tempest. So in a lot of ways, and some people have said this before, he was the quintessential magician, and therefore, I think, an okay submission for Halloween month, even though he wasn't that scary or spooky. I like Halloween entries like that, ones that are intriguing. It kind of reminds me of the mesmerism episode did for Halloween last year, ones that just make you think, what what's reality, what's not? I yeah. don't know. And it makes me interested to check out that opera if I ever get a chance. Definitely. So that probably should bring us to listener mail, don't you think? So we had a lot of fun recently recording a podcast about Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Which is definitely spooky. It is. And so we have a couple of emails here about that. One is from Marta, and she says, Good afternoon, ladies. I just finished listening to your podcast on Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds broadcast. So I wanted to share with you a fond memory that your broadcast helped me recall. 
In 2008, I worked at a local skilled nursing facility. That October, to mark the 70th anniversary of the original broadcast, I worked with some of the residents to rebroadcast the original. We really put on a show for the other residents, so it wasn't an actual radio broadcast, is what she's trying to point out. She goes on to say, the residents had a great time putting on the show, and afterwards we talked about the original. Many of the residents that I worked with were teenagers and young adults at the time, and they told me that for some it was a little scary and for others a good laugh, but the majority were glued to their seats wanting to know what happened next. The residents enjoyed sharing their memories of their youth with me, which made this little bit of history come alive for me. I've since moved on in my career, and some of those residents have passed away, but your podcast covering the War of the Worlds has brought back some fond memories. So I thought that sounded like such a neat project to do, and I don't know, maybe something that would be pretty fun for schools to do, too. I mean, it's really cool if if the people actually got to hear the original, but um, it's something that doesn't seem to go away, really. Uh, We got so many emails from people about hearing the War of the Worlds, and most of them were not people who had heard the original broadcast. They'd Mm -hmm. heard it because their grandparents played it for them, or it was rebroadcast on the radio, and we even heard from some people who said, I know exactly what I would have done because I thought it was real when I heard it rebroadcast in the 70s or whatever. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem like a great thing to play for little kids because we also heard from many, many people who had terrified memories as, as children of, <laughs> of hearing the War of the World. Oh, no. But we did get another fun email. This one is from Sarah, and she wrote that a friend of mine just received his master's degree in broadcast communications, and his master's thesis was a about the War of the Worlds. Last Halloween, he threw a 1930s War of the Worlds theme party where everyone had to come in period dress. We drank classic cocktails and listened to the War of the Worlds broadcast. It was fabulous. This Halloween, he plans to host the party again, but on a bigger scale. So this also sounded really fun and a perfect pre-Halloween listener mail to include. Um, Good costume idea, for sure. Yeah, good party idea. Definitely. So if you have any... More Halloween suggestions. We'll probably have time to to receive your feedback and maybe record some. I don't know. Get them in soon, though. Maybe as soon as you as soon as you hear this podcast, if we're gonna have a turnaround. Yeah, you know, though, we can always use spooky ideas. We, we are always up for spooky. It ideas. doesn't have to be contained in just one month of the year. We can spread it around. Definitely. So write in to us. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we are on Facebook too. So those are all great ways to leave your Halloween suggestions. And if you want to join me on my quest to find out what this whole Harry Potter thing is all about many years after the (laughs) fact of it's being cool, you can check out an article we have on our website called How Harry Potter's Wand Works. I think I should probably hold off from reading it, though, in case it has spoilers. Sure, there will be some spoilers. But you can find that by visiting our homepage and searching for Harry Potter at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.